Good morning, everyone. The scripture reading this morning will be from 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. And if you are using a pew Bible in front of you, that'll be on page 964. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. And we'll start in verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God that is at Corinth, with all the saints who are in the whole of Achaia. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. So also, you also must help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessings granted us through the prayers of many. Let's pray together. God, as we come before you this morning, we eagerly anticipate your word being proclaimed. I pray that the Spirit would be amongst us, active and working in our hearts so that we can be convicted of sin, that we can be ready to go out and share the gospel, and that we would be changed for your glory, God. We thank you for gathering us here together, and we know that's only because of Christ and everything that he's accomplished. So we thank you most of all for him. Give us ears to hear. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Every 4th of July, we celebrate our freedom as a nation. Our neighborhood is particularly patriotic, as fireworks displays can be seen and heard and sometimes felt from Memorial Day all the way to Labor Day. <laughs> but... Freedom is not the only characteristic which we would list if we were to speak of our nation. We are a multicultural nation, a melting pot. We are a wealthy nation marked by materialism. We are a sports nation. Every season marked by the sports we watch 
and play. We are a self-oriented nation, boasting to gain honor from others on Twitter and displaying accomplishments publicly so others will take notice of them on Facebook. We're a religious nation. I mean, everywhere you look, you can find a different religion, can't you? And most of them, if not all of them, are centered on you, serving you, benefiting you. Now, within the umbrella of Christianity, we would call this the prosperity gospel, those, that, that teaching which says that Christians are to be characterized by health and by wealth and by strength and by social status. And quite frankly, this is the kind of religion that people love. This, people love this kind of religion. It's a religion that promises uh, salvation from the suffering of today and promises power. And those who preach such a Christianity often do so with flair and with force and with pride. Their delivery can be quite entertaining. And this is another thing we love, isn't it? Our nation loves a religion that entertains. One that is, seems more motivated by the experience you get by being there than by the truth communicated there. I mean, in thinking about our nation, there really is much to celebrate about the United States, but there is also much to mourn. And the church of the Lord Jesus Christ has been called to live in this nation, but not of it. And quite frankly, we're struggling. On the whole, the current of culture is carrying the church away from where she should be. Like a child at the beach playing in the shallow water, where the current slowly but surely carries that child down unknowingly down the shore until at some point the child looks up and can't even recognize where it's at anymore. It seems that much of the church has lost sight of where we first started. Isn't it true that we're caught up in materialism? Isn't it true that we're caught up in sports? Isn't it true that we're caught up in serving ourselves? That we see the church as an organization meant to serve me. That we exalt religious experience and exalt entertainment. We're so captivated by what captivates the culture that it seems that cultural standards are often being used to evaluate the church that cultural standards are being used to evaluate the church's pastors and leaders. Now, you may be sitting there and you wonder, what does this have to do with 2 Corinthians 1, verses 1 to 11? Did Toby bring his pastoral soapbox to church today and he decided he's going to put it up behind the pulpit and he's going to stand on it? He's going to tell us all about the church in America? Well, no, I lost my pastoral soapbox quite a long time ago. Actually, it was taken from me and never returned. <laughs> so let me explain. What I just described for you as life in the United States in the 21st century is almost a carbon copy of the way many commentators describe life in the first century in the city of Corinth. It's an important city. 
a melting pot type city. It's driven by sports. It's driven by materialism. It's driven by self-glorification. And the buzz for religion is to find a religion that's marked by something that's entertaining and relieving looking for teachers with flair and force and pride who will promise health and wealth and ease. And just as the church today struggles to stay faithful in such a current, so did the church in Corinth. You can see why we might study a letter like this. You see, many in the church of Corinth had turned their backs on the apostle Paul. Sure, Paul could write a great letter. I mean, if you read his letters, his letters really are something. But when he shows up for the meeting, he's really not much to look at, and he's not much to listen to either. He kind of stumbles his way through. He's pretty simplistic. He keeps talking about the same things. Christ and him crucified. Christ and him crucified. Christ. We got it, Paul. Can we get on to the deeper stuff? Christ and him crucified. Christ and him crucified. He writes a great letter, but he's not much to listen to. He's not like the other speakers in Corinth. There are some real hot shots you can hear. Now, there's a sense in which Paul does write to, he writes this letter in order to defend his apostleship, but not because Paul feels a sense in which he needs to defend himself. He made that clear in what we call 1 Corinthians. He said, it, it doesn't matter actually to me whether you judge me. I don't even judge myself. The Lord judges me. So he's not writing out of a sense of self-preservation here. He's writing because Jesus said, if they receive you, they receive me. He's writing because his apostleship is directly tied to the gospel that he preaches. And in turning their backs on him and looking to these other teachers, they are turning away from Christ and him crucified as the heart and soul of Christianity and looking for something else. And that's what matters. That's why Paul needs to defend his apostleship. That's why he writes. And by the time Paul has written this letter, he's made what is known as the painful visit to Corinth. It seems many in the church have repented of their attitude, but there's still an influential that haven't. There's still an influential group that hasn't. Their backs are still turned on Paul, who appears quite weak, and they've turned to the so-called super apostles in town who appear quite powerful. But as we read this letter, we find out appearances don't tell the full story. So today we begin a study in this letter. It is a great letter. It is the most personal of all of Paul's letters. You get insight into Paul and into his experiences through this letter. It's a letter that reminds us that God's power is made manifest in our weakness. Thus the title of our study, Power and Weakness. And in these opening verses, Paul says that the God who made him an apostle, the God to whom the Corinthian church belongs, the God who is the source of grace and peace, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, is not a God who promises to keep us from affliction. He doesn't fit in with the religious teachings of the day. 
Because there are teachers around that say, well, if you've got really good religion, you won't actually face affliction. And Paul says, no, 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 no. This is not... The, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ is not a God who keeps us from affliction. Rather, He is a God who works in it, works through it, and displays His awesome power in it. Thus, He is called the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever thought about the fact that you can't call God the Father of mercies? and the God of all comfort unless you need His mercies, unless you know your need of comfort, unless there's something that reveals to you your absolute weakness and your need for God's help. And so as we look at these 11 verses, I think we'll learn this. It's not complicated, but it's glorious. God comforts us in all our afflictions so we have hope. God comforts us in all our afflictions so we have hope. First, let's think about the afflictions of life. Paul first mentions them in verse 4, comforts us that God, the God of all comfort, comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction. The word affliction appears in some form, four different times, along with a parallel word, sufferings. Now, many of you will know this word, afflictions, and you will know it because you've been through the very class that was uh, advertised during the offering in that video, the Rod and Staff Biblical Counseling Classes. You know that word because you've been through that class. And if you haven't been through the classes, if you haven't thought about life and problems from a biblical perspective in that kind of intensive manner, I encourage you. I plead with you. We don't offer that for no reason. If you notice, we don't just offer every class that comes around the block here. But we go out of our way not only to offer it, but to pay for half of your cost if you're a member of Gray Road because we believe that every member of this church needs to be trained in biblical counseling to some degree because it develops in us a biblical understanding of life and of problems and it equips us to better one another with other people, to actually help others as they walk through it. So you can go to rodandstaffministries.org slash training and our class, the class that's hosted here is on Monday nights, though there, are other, there is another one that you, could, that you can sign up for if that's better for your schedule. Anyway, back to this word afflictions. It's the Greek word thlipsis, which basically means pressure. I mean, you, basically, you have to have pressure in your mouth even to say the word thlipsis. It pressurizes your mouth. But you, you know what it means to be squeezed by life, don't you? Surely you know what it means to be squeezed, squeezed by work demands or by the strains in relationships or strains in your finances or maybe you feel the pressure to compromise your integrity or the pressure to stay silent when love would speak. Students going back to school feel the squeeze and pressure of new classes and new teachers and the same old pressure to, to do this or to do that and to fit in and to follow and to compromise your faith. There are all kinds of things in life that squeeze. So let's think about it. First, 
I want you to notice that these afflictions are varied. They are varied. Look at verse 4. God comforts us in all our afflictions so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction. So while he is speaking generally about affliction, he, this word any points to every single individual one. And there are all kinds. Just put your finger there and flip forward to chapter 11. All right, chapter 11. Or if you're using the Bible on your phone, scroll to chapter 11. I don't know how that works. I mean, I do know how it works. I just don't do it often. In chapter 11, verses 24 to 28, Paul gives a kind of catalog of the afflictions that he has suffered. But what I want to point out to you right now, we'll think about them in more detail later. I just want you to hear the variety in this list. First, there are afflictions that he faced as he serves Christ. Afflictions faced as he serves Christ. So things like being shipwrecked, shipwrecked, adrift at sea, danger from rivers, danger from robbers. He's at, he's at sea and he's in toil and hardship, sleepless nights, hungry, thirsty, in cold and exposure. In many ways, these are things that anyone might face, aren't they? whether they're Christian or not. But as he goes about serving the Lord Jesus Christ, these are some of the general types of afflictions. But it's not just that he faces affliction, affliction as he serves Christ. These are afflictions, there are afflictions he faced because he serves Christ. He's whipped. He's beaten. He's stoned. He faces opposition from Jews and from Gentiles and from false brothers. He has a deep daily concern, anxiety for the churches. These are things he wouldn't have if he were not serving Christ. And so they are varied in their kinds, and we will face a variety of afflictions, won't we? Some of them will look just like the afflictions of your neighbors. But some of them will come because you seek to serve and honor the Lord Jesus Christ. Some of them will come as you serve the Lord Jesus Christ. Some of them will come because you serve the Lord Jesus Christ. But Paul is not interested in just dealing with one category. He's dealing with any afflictions, all afflictions. The second thing about the afflictions of life is that these afflictions can be quite severe. Back to chapter 1. Listen to verses 8 and 9. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. So just think about two of the phrases here that point to the severity. First, so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. I cannot number for you the amount of times I have sat across from someone who was seeking counsel and they laid out what it was that was going on in their life and they laid out the pain that they are walking through and this verse comes to mind because they are just so utterly burdened beyond their strength that they are despairing of life itself. 
Now the phrase basically speaks to something that is impossibly heavy. Impossibly heavy. Not just something that's heavy. Something that is, the word utterly there is the word hyperbole. It is extreme. It is to the very extreme. It is impossibly heavy. This burden, this distress, this weight. A few years ago, John and Pam Aldridge called us up because they know that especially my two oldest sons love music, and they generously gave us an organ that belonged to John's dad. Right, John, your dad? So we take, we take the seats out of the van, and we go over there to get this organ, not knowing what we're getting into. We manhandle the organ into the back of the van, We get it home, we get it in the living room, and then we remember we have stairs. So we try with my two oldest sons, Caleb and Austin, pushing and me trying to lift from the top. We got nowhere. We we took it all the way off, we put it back on with them at the top and me at the bottom. We got nowhere. We tried a variety of different circumstances to get that impossibly heavy organ up the stairs and couldn't do it. And finally, we just decided we're going to have to take something out. So we took off the back panel and we took out, uh, we took out the speakers. They're these heavy magnetic speakers. And uh, we took them out, which took it from impossible to lift to nearly impossible to lift. All right? So... We got it on the stairs, the boys are at the top, and I'm at the bottom, and I literally, I get four steps up, and my sweet, caring, loving bride, I'm literally straining for all my life to get this thing up the stairs, and I'm like this, and I look back, and she is at the bottom of the stairs like this, (laughs) and I said, sweetheart, get away from the stairs. Because if this thing goes, it will kill me, and I'd rather our children still have a parent left (laughs) once it goes. Well, we get it up the stairs, and we put put it back together, and we get it in. But friends in life, we don't get to just take our afflictions apart and just handle a little bit of them at a time. And so often we're sitting at the bottom of what feels like an endless staircase with something we'll never be able to lift. And we're pushing with all our might and we very quickly realize all our might doesn't amount to much. Can't afflictions be quite severe? The second phrase here is that we felt we had received the sentence of death. Literally what it means is Uh, felt that we had is actually just a reflexive pronoun. It's just we ourselves received the sentence of death. And for Paul, this was quite literal. The death sentence was waiting for him everywhere he went. It was around every corner, behind every bush, inside the gate of every city. And while it's not literal for us, doesn't it... Many people just get to that place, don't we? Under the impossibly heavy affliction, we think 
This is it. There's no getting past this. There's no getting through this. It's over. And a sense of hopelessness sets in. The afflictions of life are varied and they can be severe. But the afflictions aren't the focus of the text. They help bring focus to the focus, which is this, the comfort of God. Now, listen to verses 3 and 4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who fa- the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. The word comfort appears either in noun or in verb form about ten times in this text. I mean, Paul wants to drive it home that while afflictions may wait behind any number of doors in life, those afflictions are not the only thing behind the door. God's comfort is behind that door. And it's waiting for you. You're going to step into the room of affliction, but you're going to be greeted by a God ready to comfort So in verse 4, God comforts all in all our affliction. Not one of them escapes. There's not an affliction that God's going to have us walk through that he's like, I think they got this. I think they can do this one on their own. They don't need me. He doesn't think of us the way so many of us think of us. He comforts in all our affliction. And then in verse 5, Listen to this. As we share abundantly in Christ's suffering, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort. Some of us would look at our lives right now and say, yes, the suffering is abundant. It's not just impossibly heavy. It's everywhere. And yet it's wonderful because Paul says, as we abundantly suffer, comfort comes in abundance. There's not a bit of it that goes unmet by the Lord's help. Now, to understand what we mean here, what Paul means, and and, and Timothy, who's helping write the letter, we need to understand the word comfort. Now, we often associate comfort strictly with a kind of relief, don't we? Relief or ease or freedom from pain and anxiety. But that's not actually what the English word means. The word comfort is made up of two parts. The prefix come means with. Fort is from the Latin word fortis, which means strength or courage. So when we speak of comfort, we are not speaking of something that takes us from the painful circumstance. We are speaking of something that gives us strength for the painful circumstance. This is what God meets us with. Because until then, you'd be, you'd be tempted to doubt, wouldn't you? Every affliction I'm comforted in, I'm walking through affliction right now, and I'm not feeling any relief. I'm not feeling free from pain. I'm not being eased at all. What's happening here? Well, comfort isn't meant to relieve us from the pain. It is to strengthen us for it. This is what God promises. 
So David Garland, a commentator, says this. This is wonderful. Comfort is not some tranquilizing dose of grace that only dulls pain, but a stiffening agent that fortifies one in heart, mind, and soul. God's comfort strengthens weak knees and sustains sagging spirits so that one faces the troubles of life with unbending resolve and unending assurance. That's what God's comfort does. Strengthens our weak knees. Sustains our sagging spirits. The Greek word is parakaleo, which is a word that speaks of exhortation or encouragement or urging. So the question is, what is it that, what is it that God's exhorting to Paul? What was God's exhortation to Paul that now he's saying, the God who's done this for me will do it for you. In many ways, he's doing exactly in this text what he says comfort is meant to do, which is to strengthen us to comfort others. But anyway, that'll come. What is the encouragement that Paul, that Paul receives? What is it that the Corinthians need to stay aware of? Well, verses 8 and 9, he says, We do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experience in Asia, for we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. If I can, let me paraphrase what it is that God taught Paul, how God strengthened Paul with his words, with his comfort, with his exhortation, his encouragement in the midst of affliction. God basically said this, Paul, you know those afflictions in Asia? Do you know being burdened beyond your strength? You know the weight of the death sentence, all those things that exposed your weakness and your vulnerability and your fragility? I sent them. Why? To teach you something you'd never learn without them. Paul, you can't rely on yourself. You can't rely on your strength or your capacity or your wit or your wisdom, so stop trying to do it. You must rely on me. You must cling to my truth. You must rest in my greatness and my goodness and my wisdom. You must cast your anxieties on me in prayer. You must cling to the fact that even when death comes, I can be trusted because I raise the dead. That's what Paul learned. You see, friends, only in relying on the Lord will we find strength in the weakness that affliction exposes. That's what affliction does. It exposes our very weakness. Sometimes it is moral weakness that we need to repent of, but in all cases, it is just our creaturely weakness, our inability to handle life on our own. It's amazing. We recognize we don't breathe on our own, we don't exist on our own, but somehow we fall under the lie that we can handle life on our own. And the Bible calls out to you and the Bible calls out to me, have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not grow faint. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. 
Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. That is the Old Testament version of 2 Corinthians 1 verse 9. That was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Those who wait for the Lord will renew their strength. No matter who you are, no matter how strong you are, you will faint and you will grow weary. I mean, the Lord would say the same thing to us, to you, if you're in the midst of affliction now, at work or in friendships or in marriage or in finances or in whatever capacity it is, in the health of your own body. The Lord would look at you and say, the affliction is crushing it's beyond your capacity to handle. It's exposing all manner of weakness in you. And that's on purpose. Because knowing your own weakness is the first step to knowing my strength. So stop looking to yourself. Stop looking to your own resources, to your own solutions, to your own wisdom. Look to the Lord. In fact, this is the essence of what it means to become a Christian. It is to see the sin in our heart and the punishment we deserve from God and to be utterly burdened by it, knowing that we can't atone for it, knowing that we can't escape God's wrath no matter what we do. And part of our repentance is to stop looking to ourselves. Stop looking at our own resources. Stop looking at our own good works. Stop looking at our own religious resumes. Stop putting together a bunch of merit to try to say, God, I'm so much better than all the other people. Can't you tell? To stop doing that and to turn in faith to Jesus who went to the cross and did all of the work for us. To look to him. You see, sin permanently weakens us so that the Bible says, well, it's worse than you think. You think you're just weak, but actually you're dead. But Christ's resurrection power overcomes that and gives us life. So look to Him. Ask Him for mercy. He is the Father of mercies. Look to Him for forgiveness. Look to Him for new life. If that's you and you see that, you see you're getting nowhere with God on your own. You see how weak you actually are to do anything about the predicament that you're in. You see that you cannot save yourself. Friend, turn to the Lord Jesus Christ. Turn to someone else before you leave here and talk to them about what it means to follow Jesus. Seek counsel. Let us pray with you. We would, man, there'd be nothing more exciting today than to pray with someone who wants to come to faith in Jesus. It's glorious. This is the essence of what brought us to Christ. Why would we think that we are to live any other way? We don't just come to Christ because we're weak. We walk with Christ by knowing we're weak. And so the Christian who comes who turns to God and help in affliction 
Dear friend, you can know this. If you rely not on yourselves, but on the God who raises the dead, God will strengthen you. He will help you. As you rely on Him, you will run and not be weary. You will walk and not faint spiritually. That's what He says He will do for us. We either take God at His word or we don't. And it is easy to nod. It is easy to applaud. It is easy to agree as you're sitting here. And maybe you can't even see affliction in view. But tomorrow morning when you wake up and the affliction strikes you, as soon as the alarm goes off, we must be committed to rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Now, what does that look like? Well, it looks like this. When I'm relying not on myself, but on God, I'm relying not on my words, but on His words. I'm not relying on my own strategy. I'm relying on Him by prayerfulness. If I'm actually relying on God, then I'm relying on the fact that His way of living, His way of thinking, His way of speaking is, in fact, the only way. And I plead with God, Lord, strengthen me to walk according to Your Word today. Everything else would have me go by my own wisdom to try to figure this thing out on my own. Speak to me. Can I tell you what happens in affliction? One of the sure signs that we're relying on ourselves instead of on God? This is what happens. A sure sign that that's the direction you're going is that the frequency of you being alone with the Lord in the Word will diminish. You will find a reason to avoid the gathering of God's people and hear His Word preached. You will come to realize you can't even think of the last time you actually prayed more than the what seems to be an obligatory prayer with your children around the dinner table. If that is something that's happening to you and you're in the midst of affliction, dear friend, hear that as a call to repent. To stop relying on yourself and rely on the Lord. But that's not it, is it? Apparently the comfort of God is not just for us. We're not even to be self-oriented when it comes to being comforted in our own afflictions. God's comfort is designed such that we are meant to share it with one another. Paul sees his own affliction that way in verse 6. Did you notice that? If we are afflicted, it's for your comfort and your salvation. If we are comforted, it is for your comfort. He doesn't see his affliction or his comfort as being primarily about him. It's primarily about the power of God, and then it's about ministry to God's people. Certainly, he enjoys the, the comfort of God. Certainly, he walks in joy knowing that the Lord is strengthening him. 
But he doesn't do it so that he looks in the mirror all the time and talks about how wonderful things are now that he's walking in comfort. And he says, when, as the Lord strengthens you in your afflictions, you are meant to comfort others. You are meant to speak the same things to others that God says to us. That's what that means. So what does that look like? Well, it might look like this. Putting your arm around the one who's in affliction. Listening to their burden. Weeping with those who weep. Praying with them. And then, as God gives opportunity, saying something like this. God, friend, whatever else God may be doing in this affliction, He's certainly reminding you that we can't trust in anything but Him. Trust in Him with all your heart. Don't lean on your own understanding. Don't try to figure out every little detail of everything that's going on. Focus on acknowledging Him, that He's good and great and wise, and He will strengthen you to walk this path. Take my word for it. Let me tell you about how God did it for me. Do you hear that? It is the call to be faithful. It is the call to not rely on yourself, but rely on God. And here's the comfort with which I was afflicted. I was comforted. The afflictions of life, the comfort of God, which lead us to the hope we have. Hope is not a vain wish in the New Testament. It's a confident expectation of good. We have hope of comfort in our affliction. We have hope of final deliverance from all affliction. So, think of it this way. We have hope for the present. Look at verse 7. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, so you will share in our comfort. Paul's not looking to the sweet by and by there. He's saying, as you're in so our hope is this, that God will meet you right where you are with His comfort, with His strength. And that hope is unshaken. It is immovable. It is guaranteed. It is secure. He won't leave you. He won't forsake you. He will strengthen you. He will help you. You can take it to the bank. You can count on it. That is your hope right now in the middle of affliction. That as you suffer, God will comfort you. God will strengthen you. God will give you everything you need to walk faithfully through this time. But it's not just for the present, it's for the future. Look at verse 10. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and He will deliver us. On Him we have set our hope that He will deliver us again. Now, deadly peril there um, is an interesting translation because it's just the word death, which makes sense because He said we felt like we received the death sentence and then he goes on to say, he's delivered us from death, and we believe he'll do it again. Paul's talking about all the times, just read the book of Acts, right? All the times that God rescues him from this place and from that place in seemingly uh, random ways, and yet he attributes it all to God's deliverance. God delivered me from these temporal things, and I think he'll do it again. And then... There's the far distant, there's the future here. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. 
Because even once death comes, whether it's by the harsh hand of an enemy or by the sweet hand of providence, God will deliver. It's guaranteed by the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is the first fruits, and He will raise us with Him so that not even death will have the last word. And that fact sustains Paul in every affliction. If you knew, if you knew walking into every affliction that there's nothing about that affliction that can actually touch you in any way that is permanent, do you think you'd walk into it differently? I think you would. I know I would. Yeah, but this will kill you. But that can't touch me permanently. Yeah, but this, you may lose your job. Okay, but that's not going to touch me permanently. Okay, but you're going to lose friendships. Oh, that may, it won't touch me permanently. The wonderful news for those who trust in the Lord Jesus Christ is that nothing can ultimately kill us. It may usher us unexpectedly through the door of death, but it will only do so into eternal life. That's why Jesus said, don't fear those who can kill the body but can't touch your soul. Don't do that. That's hope. How would that change the way you heard the diagnosis this week? How would that change the sudden shift in your finances that was unexpected this week? How would it change how you think about sharing the gospel with other folks just over the lunch table? Because you know they don't even, they hate Christianity. They make it very clear. It gives strength, doesn't it? It's interesting that some people say that affliction highlights the weakness of your faith. You know, if you're walking through affliction, it's because you don't believe enough. And such a religion like that, I'm not even interested in a religion like that. It's very hopeless. But Paul rejects such a notion. He says that, yes, affliction highlights weakness. But it's not a weakness of faith. It's a weakness in our very being. We who cannot exist on our own cannot handle affliction on our own. And dear Christian, can I just can I say something to you that I would say something I would say the exact same thing to me? We just need to get real comfortable with that idea. Because it will be proven over and over and over and over again in our lives. But in recognizing our weakness, we will enjoy the comfort of God, the strength of God, the power of God at work in us. That is our hope in the present, and it reminds us of our hope for the future. God comforts us in all our afflictions. Is that good news to you today?
It should be like balm for the, for the, for the weary soul. Manna in the wilderness of life. Water for the one wandering in the desert. God comforts us in all our afflictions, and because of that, we have hope. Let's pray together. Our Father, we come before you, the God of all comfort, the Father of mercies, and we confess that so often we have sought to rely on ourselves rather than on you in the hardest times in life. We have sought to make strategies rather than to pray prayers. We have looked more to research than we have to your word. We pray you will teach us once again what it means to rely on you. We are thankful that those who wait on the Lord will renew their strength. We are thankful that you are a God who comforts us in all our afflictions. We pray for one another. We pray knowing that most of the afflictions being endured even by those in this room are unknown to even a large group of people. And yet, in that affliction, you promise to meet every single person in this room as we turn to you in faith, as we rely on you. You promise to strengthen us to be faithful to not fear and not doubt and not lose hope. And so we pray that you will give us grace that we might be faithful in walking through afflictions and that we might be faithful in comforting one another with the same comfort with which we've been comforted. Make it so for Jesus' sake. Amen. Let's stand for just a